This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Judd, that froth you love to quaff. Judd. Judd is not responsible for any quaff-related injuries you may sustain. You're listening to Young Grognard, a Dungeons and Dragons podcast. A haven for all things nerdy and dungeonous. Enjoy. Howdy everybody out there. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I want to give a big hearty tavern hello to those who land hits, those who never crit, those who are packing a mac and a stack and a grip. My name is the Young Grognar. I am the Grognar the Young. I'm here joined with my main man, Rygra, Ryan. And hello everybody, it's me, Ryan. And so, today's episode we're going to be talking about weapons. What they mean to the people using them, what they mean to the party, and how they can express character traits, or the lack of, in their use. So, let's get right into it, huh? Yeah, so, uh, speaking of the weapons, uh, for this episode, uh, I wanted to start off with just talking about the idea that, you know, like Ryan had just mentioned for a second there, uh, how picking a weapon can say a lot about a character, but also say very little. Now, uh, for the most of you guys out there who are playing 5th edition, uh, this is not usually how things go, but in the earlier editions of the game, 1st uh, edition and I believe 2nd edition specifically, there was, and I'm, I'm only bringing this up because it's a pretty good example of how it can define a character and how it could also be super not important, but in the earlier editions of the game, you can pick weapons uh, based on your class, meaning that you got to pick a number of weapons to be proficient in. Uh, obviously you had your list depending on what class you came from of what was available to choose from but for the most part when you were picking your weapons as a wizard uh, as an example you only got one to pick from a group of three and your options were usually staff dagger and dart and now anybody out there who makes a wizard knows your weapon's really not all that important to you and it's sort of an oh shit stick if you get the staff where it's like i mean if you really need to pull out your staff it's kind of too late already but when we think about playing our fighter you know, we imagine already in our head, like, what weapon comes to mind. You know, the big, you know, barbarian battle axe or the dwarvish hammer or the knight's longsword. Like, these weapons help define a lot of who they are. Um, and so I guess, you know, the first point I want to bring up is just, why is it that it's so important to a character to have the right weapon that fits them, Ryan? Well, I'm going to say that when you and everyone else at the table is sort of putting together in the theater of the mind the picture for the story that you're all creating together you kind of want to for these martial classes especially have a kind of clear picture in mind of the actions they're going to take and the way they're going to make a strike uh when a wizard casts magic missile it's always going to be in everyone's mind kind of a different thing to the same effect but when a fighter attacks with their warhammer to say that can go a lot of ways uh if you don't outright kill the enemy how did you strike them did you hit them in the knee did you deliver an uppercut to the chin maybe it was just a direct thrust like a messy out of place thrust with that warhammer two-handed style right into the chest just to kind of knock them back a little bit get them off your self 
So I think describing that and giving a sort of character itself to the way your character wields their weapon is incredibly important for those kind of martial classes. And even the non-martial classes on the off chance that the wizard has to strike out with his quarterstaff or the rogue who normally relies on his longbow is suddenly cornered and has two daggers in hands. You sort of want to have a way to express the uncertainty in them or the sudden cold intent in their eyes. Yeah, and I think uh, just to sort of summarize what you're saying there, it almost feels like the weapon becomes an extension of their actions, as if being a fighter with all the exact same ideals and bonds and characteristics, the the fact that you either have a short sword, a long sword, a heavy flail, or a warhammer kind of helps direct how that character fights. For some reason in my head, I'm thinking of Conan the Barbarian right now. And I remember that was one of the only places I've ever seen a live action without too much CGI scene with a guy with a warhammer. The big final battle out in like the, uh, the Standing Stones area with Conan and that guy. He had a war hammer, and it wasn't some cheesy, you know, actual looser and realistic hammer, and it wasn't some cheesy dwarfish one. Like, it was a real brutal, two-handed, clubbing hammer. You know, it was like a four-by-four four block at the end of a stick. No, the reason why I bring it up is because the way he fought versus Conan with a longsword, they were both brutal, bar, uh, 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 real brutal, burly men who were very, you know, tall and strong, and they both fought with great ferocity like barbarians, but because he had that war hammer, and you knew there was going to be a head splattered like a, like a watermelon out there, like, it made his fighting style seem more cumbersome, but way more brutal. And I think what's kind of neat about weapons is they have the, the ability to sort of affect combat in that flavored way, just like you said. Um, but I think this also brings up uh, another interesting concept when picking weapons as characters is the idea of how exotic do you go and at what point do you feel like people are kind of just specializing for the sake of numbers because personally I think that exotic weapons can be really neat if played in the right way and I also just feel like the whole specializing thing is kind of I don't know I feel like a lot of times I see a lot of people who will pick certain weapons because they see the damage uh, ratio goes way up depending on what they pick. And for me, I just feel like that that never spoke to me as a player nor a dungeon master. But but what do you think, Ryan? How do you feel about more exotic weapons? Things like twin blades or, or double-sided weapons, things on chains that normally aren't. How do you feel about that kind of stuff? So I guess I'll sort of pitch two different character concepts that I've played recently. Um... Both of them were martial classes. One was a centaur barbarian, and the other was a human fighter. The centaur barbarian, she wields a lance because it just sort of feels right for this kind of calvarious built into her race class to have that really, really just powerful lance just coming out whenever it needs to and it sort of feels right as a barbarian to even when she gets in within that five feet and takes that penalty in fifth edition uh on disadvantage she just goes through the reckless and takes a regular attack i think that brings a lot of character to just the way she sort of fights and just all around who she is uh the other was a human fighter who was specialized towards shields and was using a one-handed um, more mace, 
Wolfman. Yeah, chain. the one on the chain would be a flail. Flail. My God, I can't believe I forgot that. <laughs> Embarrassing. Um. Anyway, and she used a flail, and um, so her flail sort of looks like a mace that she would push a button, detach a chain from, and the top of the mace would fall off and turn into a flail. And I think it sort of gave flavor to her as a character where normally you wouldn't see characters with flails on the battlefield because they're, one, not the greatest damage. She would have been better off with a longsword or a two-handed greatsword or pretty much any other versatile weapon. But just the idea that she has this transformative weapon that when she sort of really gets into the battle, she drops it down and just brings uh, this wild sort of energy to the fight. Um, so I, I kind of like those kind of out of place exotic weapons i discourage the idea of taking one just to get the maximum dps or damage per turn or that kind of thing like if you're gonna build a paladin and sort of go with uh two-handed scimitar so you can get three smites per turn it feels kind of cheesy unless you can make it work for you as a character I, I don't imagine you're talking about anybody in particular there. That was a very specific example, and we're just going to roll off to the next one. But uh, I completely agree, though. I think there's something to be said about how specializing for the sake of, like, picking weapons just to get different die. Like, I understand the desire for that sort of thing, and I will admit that in some instances where I've made characters who their characteristics stood out more than their weaponry did, I've been cool with picking a weapon that I knew would do more damage or have a higher crit ratio or, or whatever it is. Uh, simply because it didn't make one difference either way for me, and it made sense that maybe the character themselves would recognize how much more deadly a certain weapon choice would be and thus go for it. Um, I will say, though, that uh, as far as exotic weapons and making weapons stand out, a way to make a weapon exotic without actually going full-on, you know, detachable chain flail machine uh, is you can go ahead and make a weapon made of an interesting material. And I'm not even suggesting you know, uh, necessarily the uh, concept of adamantine or cold iron or any of the those ones, as well as silver. Uh, so much as things like, uh, I don't know, like I know druids run into that issue where they can't use metal weapons in a lot of instances or, or metal uh, armor. So people used to get around that a lot in the past where they would do spells to make ironwood, and thus you would have an entire druidic, you know, uh, a convent. I guess that might be the word. A druidic circle. Let's say that. That sounds less culty. Uh, where they would have sort of a smith who would make them metal weapons, but they would transform it into wood with the same hardness of iron, but wooden. I mean, that that itself speaks to be some sort of a quest. Maybe you have to earn a certain rite of passage amongst a group of druids for your druid to get you know, a, a wooden longsword that cuts just like diamond, you know? Um, which I think that speaks to being a really interesting weapon, one, because it makes it a quest, and two, because it's made of such an interesting material. Perhaps your rogue has daggers made of, I don't know, hydra's teeth. I know we've had instances in the past where players have taken teeth or scales or what have you to make either gear or weapons or armor, but I think that sort of thing, especially from the perspective of a dungeon master, can make your players feel really engaged with the storyline and feel like they really earned that victory. When I run games, I try to include, if I'm running a campaign for relatively new players, I try to include a lot of 
material and monsters and gear that you know would be relevant that if you went into any game store people would you know be able to talk about so if you've ever battled a dragon or a beholder or found a i don't know a, a, a vorpal blade i want players to be able to contribute in that conversation so when players can make gear out of those kinds of fancy kills and those big you know story kills I think it lets players feel more attached to the items, but then the, the items almost become their own storyline of itself. You know, the, the weapon has a background. Um, but, you know, uh, can you think of any instances of certain weapons that have stood out and not just because they were fancy, but more materials related or a certain story to them? Um, well, I think you brought up a good point back there about... Um sort of pulling monster materials to make or infuse weapons with flavor. Like, say you have the Hydra Teeth, um, and you sort of bring those into, um, like, roll them into kind of like a dagger or even a short sword, and you describe this thing as a very serrated, almost like, uh, like a shark's mouth kind of dagger or short sword in that when it strikes across the enemy it doesn't just cut it rips it, it pulls apart and so i think as a player or a dm when you are describing the way a character's weapon inflicts wounds on enemy that gives a lot of fluff to it and i think it makes the characters feel more empowered when they feel like they actually tore into an enemy and just brought it low through sheer ferocity because of their very primitive. Oh, I won't even say primitive, but primal weapons. Yeah, brutal, like brutal was another. Yeah, one. like and I think that can really, really lend itself to some good times. Um, As a DM, I find that I do this every once in a while. Whenever the party fights giants or ogres or something like that, they're just big enough that they can attack in this way. If I ever have my party fight an ogre or a hill giant that actually uses weapons of their size, I'm not doing it right. I, I can name you know a countless number of games where I've had ogres and giants and trolls that have fought with either like table legs or just tree branches, just pretty much anything big enough that you can tell that human beings would not be able to hold it, but they can hold it in one hand like a person holds a longsword. And just the thought, uh, like the kind of terror that can inflict in a party where an unarmed ogre walks onto the battle scene and just tears the top half of a tree off of the bottom half and takes a nice hefting swing in at the party. I think that that does quite a lot for for making a combat stand out and making an enemy seem pretty intense like that, you know? Um, but yeah, uh, before we get on to the next topic, uh, I'm going to do a drop from one of our sponsors. Uh, take it away. Sunday. 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 Orcs, goblins, ogres, and trolls. Come on down to the blood Pain and Death Fest benefit show for half orcs without home. Sponsored by Judd and Clarence without borders. Children under five and dwarves and elves under 50. Get in for free. Free, free. Flamin' Valkyrie Pyros bring you everything you ever desired. Even that thing your wife won't do. 15th Annual Ross Monster Chariot Derby of Doom, presented at the main event. Losers eaten by a 50-foot-tall Tarascosaurus of Metal. 
Pre-order tickets now, big baby, and get yourself a voucher for a free shake of gnome with an order of spicy halfling tots on the side. Do it! You won't! And I want to give a nice thank you again to our friends down at the Blood Dome. Come on down on Sunday. Sunday. Uh, someday. So the next topic I want to bring up uh, really quickly is magical weapons. And so I'm not going to go too in-depth about this one, but I do think that this deserves some level of recognition. 5th edition has been pretty good about uh, announcing the levels of rarity with the magic items without falling prey to 3.5 and Pathfinder's I mean, I think it's kind of an errant move for them as a company or any of these game systems to do this, but to make the magic item sort of library or the magic item wholesale, you know, uh, uh, yard sale with or the flea market of magic weapons where there's just hundreds of magic weapons, literally thousands of magical pieces of gear. I think 5th edition walks pretty safe on their line where they don't include too many magical items and instead make magical items really rare. Um, and make magic items sort of stand out as sort of almost career-long gear. So in the case of magical weaponry, because I know, obviously, if you have bards in your group, you'll get magical musical instruments or magical shields and gear. Wizards get magic items, too. Uh, hashtag wizards, too. Um, but, yeah, I mean, do you have any specific magic weapons that stand out as being some favorites from your career as a player? I mean, and this is going to be kind of... Just really gonna be wanking you off here. I mean, I'm, I'm YG. I mean, but... I, I mean, the young Grognard is surrounded by the barbarian posters still, so I'm, I'm ready in the zone. My, the Nards are ready. I, I, I got my gurps ready. I, to go, I man. see the way your eyes glaze <laughs> over when you perchance upon them. But um, the Nightingale Blade was mm. probably one of my favorite, if not my most influential magic weapon i've ever received on a character on my uh was it even magic it was it was, was it just a plus one, one? yeah it was yeah. Just, which yeah i mean and that that was enough for me because in my mind uh Tadisar kind of already always struggled because okay i'm sorry i gotta interrupt you because uh in the last episode talking about voices i mentioned Tadisar, so i don't want to say that we've got like this budding bromance that appears on the podcast but all you listeners out there, if you follow this, uh, who knows? Look, he was a very, very attractive bard. Yeah, for, that, a, for a dragonborn. That 20 charisma got him quite a ways. But <laughs> So anyway, yeah, the Nightingale Blade. Um, yeah, it was just a plus one longsword, um, but the way it was flavored really made me appreciate it in the fact that every time you would swing it, it had... Um, yeah, the sort holes of, in the blade. Yep, like rings cut out mm -hmm. into it and placed into the blade, like piercings on a blade um, that would sort of sing, like a wind chime or... A uh, bird song. Or bird song, bird song specifically, yeah. And sort of, Tadasar's whole deal was that he was kind of a soldier before he was a bard. Um, and so he always placed that mentality for, first, and he was sort of a walk, walking armory. And... Um, so finding a weapon that sort of spoke to both sides of him as a soldier and a bard was kind of very game-changing for him. He sort of wielded that weapon with a new sense of purpose. So I'd say that giving a player something like that that sort of speaks to them and their backstory and their class and also sort of just represents 
kind of what they're trying to bring to a fight without making them overpowered or just absurd is really important because I could now describe when Tatasar took his attacks that he would take these graceful long swings that sort of sung a melody before he struck an opponent down mm. and I think that was kind of beautiful in its own right yeah and, and in the same campaign um, another magic weapon that stands out to me was uh, I hope yeah it was a titan's foe which was an ancestral great axe that the barbarian of the party Barathor had found and his whole storyline was that he was a great descendant from some barbarian hero who told him when he went to his uh, his tomb uh, it told him that he should take this fabled axe and he should bring it with him on his journeys in the future. Said that instead of fighting giants like his ancestors did, that there would be an age of dragons ahead of him. And so Barathor changed his last name from Giant's Bane to Worm's Bane. Um, and yeah, so what I did was that battle axe had, you know, the whole Bane effect versus dragons. And what happened was I... I don't know if I've really seen too much of this in 5th edition, but I made it so that whenever his axe would claim the life of a dragon, or in DM's terms, whenever we hit a point in storyline that it made sense for it, I would have his magic axe develop some new special ability, which he, since he was attuned to it, would get that perk. And it was never anything wild or crazy or anything like, you know, super-powered. Instead, it was things like Endure Elements was now a permanent effect on him. So as a barbarian, he could still rock the loincloth and the gurps and the mm. pecs. And, oh, yeah. Uh, in, in, in extreme temperatures without feeling uncomfortable. He also developed a Featherfall sort of ability. Um, but yeah, and so little things that started stacking up and almost incentivized him to hold onto one blade... Not that I thought he would, you know, swap to a different weapon, but it made sense for storyline for him to hold on to it. It almost grew alongside him, and there was a part of me that felt like if the character ever died, the axe would become, I'd say, relatively useless to anybody else who picked it up. Um, but, yeah, so uh, for the last topic we have on here, uh, I think it would be a good time to talk about um, the other side of the fence when it comes to weaponry, and that is archery and uh, other ranged weapons. So, the first thing I want to say is that um, I usually tend away from playing ranged characters. I always feel like melee characters are more brave and heroic or have more flavor to their actions when they do stuff like that. And so, ranged weapons aren't really my forte when it comes to the game, but when it comes to ranged weapons... I personally love to do things like shuriken, or I'll try to do things like throwing daggers. I really appreciate doing that sort of like, I don't know, acceptable ranged weapon without being too exotic, yet exotic enough that it makes your ranged weapon style seem kind of, I don't know, intriguing and stylish. You can almost picture a character kind of like Gambit or something like that from the X-Men using this kind of a fighting style. But um, how do you feel about ranged weaponry? Um, going on what you said, the um, shurikens or throwing daggers and stuff like that, it's almost like kind of a quick and dirty kind of aspect to it where you can definitely tell that that character is a bit more rough and tumble and sort of has that kind of flair to them. But I'd say that there there are times where the short bow or long bow or even crossbow, heavy crossbow, hand crossbow can sort of... Uh, reflect a lot on a character and I think that 
if you're going to be kind of building a character with ranged weapons in mind, you kind of have to explain why they adopted that weapon in particular. I feel more than any kind of sword and board or two-handed weapon mm. kind of aspect for a character in a D&D world. Um, those ranged weapons kind of hold with them a sense of expertise more than anything else where you wouldn't trust a peasant with a crossbow but you could give a peasant a longsword and have him run out there and at least hit something um so i guess you have to sort of play them with that kind of dignified or at least um expertise in in what they're doing like they they have to understand the weapon and make it work for them as much as they work for it sure no i i definitely agree with that sentiment but i'm wondering if you're ready to muddy the waters a little bit and have sort of an interesting discussion about pushing the limits on ranged weapons in D D. I mean why not i mean there's plenty of reasons why but i think we'll uh, uh make the podcast more interesting by Pushing this one. So, um, I've been listening to a fellow podcaster. Uh, he's an OSR podcaster known as the Old Man Grognard, but I believe his actual podcast is called uh, Radio Grognard. So I will say this much. Uh, one, I love this show. It's worth, a, it's worth a subscribe, worth listening to. Nice short episodes. I give him a little shout out. Um, but I will say he has a pretty interesting opinion on using firearms in D&D and how he manages to fit them in most fantasy worlds. And in most instances, I don't like the use of firearms because I feel like there's so many questions that get asked by introducing them into the world about gunpowder and how far we can go with that and how much do they know about combustion processes and do they have engines and yada, yada, yada. But he says that the two main things that they would have in his world for power and engineering would be clockwork and steamwork. So he involves a lot of steampunk in his games. Now, at first, I'm not really huge on steampunk, so you'll have to excuse me when I don't jump up and down for that concept, but when you think about uh, an ingenuitive race like gnomes or dwarves, imagine that they have like the first forays into rifles, where they make a steam-powered rifle where there's some way where they can compress air enough into a chamber and propel a really simple style bullet kind of like a sling bullet now i thought about this and i thought to myself that makes for a really interesting quest hook but it also doesn't have to be that game breaking because if you think about it it's just a really high powered sling bullet so the damage can kind of reflect that that way it's really not game breaking and you think about the accuracy of it I mean, having that much air compressed isn't going to make for a really accurate shot because the propulsion's not going to be that great. And I know all this nerdy stuff is super interesting to talk about, but Ryan, if your character were to stumble upon a dwarvish caravan that just got hit by a group of orcs and one of the dwarves uh, that got killed in the melee happened to have a steam-powered rifle at his hip and or at his side now that he's laying there dead, would you would you as a player be super excited to pick up this weapon, or would you kind of roll your eyes and think about the crossover of genres and think this was pushing it? Um, I have to say I'd probably be skeptical almost about it. Whereas if it was suddenly introduced off of uh, Dead Man's Hands, I would kind of wonder: Is this really gonna pan out? 
will this blow up the minute I pull the trigger? That kind of thing. I would be a bit worried, but also, yeah, I'd say excited about the prospects of what it could bring to a character that I was playing. Um, more than anything, I think I'm also not a huge fan of the steampunk concept all in all, but yeah. I feel like certain parts of it can actually lend itself quite well to the D&D world with automatons and stuff like that, especially sure. with the more inventive races, like, as you said, gnomes and stuff. Yeah, because how do you explain golems if you're not... I mean, I know they kind of throw everything away and they just shake their, you know, Walt Disney wand and say magic did it, but I feel like there's just so many questions not answered there about how dwarves and gnomes can be so good in their craft to make, like basically clockwork automatons yet so many other things in their world they just haven't thought to do but yeah i mean yeah. like if, if you can infuse like a man-shaped golem to life that's held together with very intricate parts you could probably at some point assume someone looked at those parts and said couldn't we just shoot something really fast out of this and I mean that I think that's what most dwarves think whenever they look at anything made of metal. Yeah, I think so, they look at a suit of armor. And they say, "Couldn't we shoot something out it, of that?" It's like, well, that's cool, but like, why isn't it hurting anybody? And <laughs> yeah, so, right. Like, um, yeah, I just feel like firearms are kind of a natural evolution of that. Where if you're gonna sit around and say that uh, gnome dwarves have these magic infused golem esque creatures at some point one of them is gonna fucking put an arm cannon on that thing and it might work it might not but hell if they're not gonna try quite true um and so i guess another one i want to bring up or at least a point i want to add on to there about the whole inclusion of rifles and whatnot but what i do want to say is when i have thought of running games like this one thing that came to mind was that if guns are going to be that rare it makes for a really cool quest hook, too, if you think about if guns are almost a sign of nobility amongst dwarves, and only clan leaders can afford to have it, and it's more of a showpiece than anything. Imagine coming across a gun, you know? Imagine coming across some sort of a blunderbuss or something like that, and then maybe it falls in your hands. Maybe that's a mark uh, that, I don't know, you're seen as a dwarf slayer or something like that. Somehow it falls in your in your lap and... I don't know. I just to me, it strikes me as being a really novel and interesting component you can put into a world that won't disrupt it too much and can add a unique flavor without really breaking genre too much. But uh, okay, so this is sort of a three point five thing. But I want to know how you feel about repeater crossbows. Sort of having like a clip, or a, I think the word they use is a cassette. I think I don't know a clip case that has sort of a load of like six to eight crossbow bolts that directly feed into a crossbow with a mechanical uh, uh, draw to pull back the string there, so that somebody can shoot about five or six rounds in game terms, not having to do the whole move action to reload or a full action to shoot. How do you feel about doing something like that? I feel. Now in 5e, where you have something like the uh, Crossbow Master, that sort of gives you that perk where you don't have to waste an entire action or bonus action kind of reloading it. Um, it kind of diminishes taking a crossbow into the battlefield with Crossbow Master. Yeah, but I mean, maybe if you're not even looking at, if you're a campaign group or a group that's not using a, a feats, or even if you're, I don't know, imagine you're sneaking into gnomish territory and they're evil gnomes. 
and now you know that all their guards are armed with those things. doesn't matter if your character has a feat for that that makes them useless. I mean, the rest of the world might have repeater crossbows, mm-hmm. or repeater ballistas. Oof. Right. Uh, kind of changes warfare a little bit in that It certainly in that does. I mean, I guess at that point, it's, um, have your characters been to the Geneva Convention and establish what war crimes are? <laughs> I believe it's the Gnome Geneva Convention. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, so... <laughs> Ouch. I'd say they they certainly do have a place, and I I feel like they can bring something unique to the table, especially if they're hard to maintain and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but at, you have to sort of watch out with something like that because you put that in the hands of just anybody, and that's just going to cut down... Sure. It almost seems like you have to, for the rules' sake, sort of edge it out and make smaller damage or or whatever. But yeah. Um, and so the last one of those uh, weapon types I want to talk about real quick before we go to our action game show is uh, the concept of thrown weapons, and not not thrown weapons as in uh, like thrown projectiles, but instead. Um, like grenade-like weapons. And now, personally, I love them. And the problem is, is that they just kind of fall off the radar as as the games go on and as levels go up. And it just really stinks because I love the idea of playing something like an alchemist who builds things, like uh, makes brews potions, rather, like, I don't know, alchemist fire or even vials of acid, makes his own form of holy water or healing potions or what have you. And, uh, or, or Tanglefoot bags or the, uh, what's it called, the Tinder twigs, like any number of alchemical items. I know in 3.5 they had a lot of this stuff, and the problem is is that just, even there, it kind of really fell off too. Damage was so low, and I don't know why the balance was so far off with it. I'm not too familiar with Pathfinder, but I know they have an Alchemist class, and I just sort of figure they must have something related to grenade-like weapons in Pathfinder, since it's just a giant leviathan of rules, but... I don't know. How do you feel about thrown weapons like that? The grenade-style weapons? Um, I mean, uh, to bring it back to Tatasar, originally, one of the concepts I had with him was he was going to always carry a large jug of um, oil with him and sort of just, or a barrel of it, and just sort of throw it at the enemy and then use his breath weapon as a dragonborn to sort of light it ablaze. And I think that's pretty cool as a character concept goes to just sort of carry your own just greek fire with you everywhere you go and so i i've always been kind of partial to the grenade um weapons in the sense that they can really spice things up in combat because you have to be careful with them because unlike certain aspects of um wizardry or magecraft you can't kind of bubble your allies or choose the most correct position for them um when you're making an attack roll with a grenade you need to sort of include accuracy in that as well to see if it hits where it wants and while everyone wants to say that they threw their fireball 10 feet behind the enemy so it doesn't hit any of their allies if you do that with a grenade weapon you sort of have to bring that into a gameplay aspect where it did you actually land it back there or did it bounce off of one of their shields or something and land just in the middle of all of your martial allies up front that kind of thing definitely um 
But yeah, no, and I, I think this topic has a lot to go into deeper. I definitely want to do another episode for Magic Weapons and talk more specifically about those. Um, but for right now, it's time to move on to our action game show. All right, let's get going. All right, so the podcast game show for today will be an episode of The Price is Kind of Close. So, without further ado, I'd like to introduce my first guest to the show, oh, Mr. Roger. Roger, how are you doing today? A growl. Okay, um, I'll do, uh, okay, yep, so anyway, uh, and today, uh, we have five wonderful items for you to be kind of close about, uh, and we're gonna do a bit of a wager here. I will give you one, count it, one solid gold nardy for however close you can get to these, uh, the prices of these weapons. If you're within a reasonable amount, I will give you a solid gold nardy for any of these, but I'm expecting some accuracy. How do you feel about that? Uh, I feel bad as always. So let's audience, do it. let's give him a round of applause for feeling bad as always. Okay, so without further ado, the first item on the checklist of gear for your adventure into awesome is a long sword made probably by dwarves, probably humans. I don't know anybody who knows their way around metal. Uh, this fine cutting blade deals about a d8 of damage. It is a versatile weapon, and how much money would it cost for you to purchase this weapon? At market value. Or I guess not at market value. Oh. Exact value. Oh. <laughs> shit. Shit. Oh, no. <laughs> I was hoping to haggle. <laughs> yes, the price is... The price is... Uh, uh, negotiable. Yeah, the yeah. price is... Welcome to the price is negotiable. <laughs> I'm your host. Um, so how much, bitch? Pay up. Whoa. Um, I'm going to go with 15 GP. Boy, did you look that up? I didn't. Ladies and gentlemen, Riker is correct on the first one. Whew! I have a feeling for markets. Okay, well, uh, now, finding your longsword, you're going your first Dungeness adventure. Now, any good adventurer knows to pack with them, there's a certain slender, cylindrical friend made of wood, the ten-foot pole. Now, apart from being useful for both monks and exotic dancers, this could be useful for many adventurers. Now, my question is, how many pieces of certain valued metal coinage is this worth to you? Did you say it was a ten-foot wooden pole? Yeah. That's going to be uh, 25 silver or 2.5 gold for me. Damn. Uh, well, I would love to be the person who was selling you this 10-foot pole because it is five copper pieces. Goodness. Yeah, apparently the market for 10-foot poles is uh, not doing so hot. So, ladies and gentlemen out there, stop listening to the podcast. Go buy some 10-foot poles. Sell them to me. This episode was not brought to you in any way sponsored by a 10-foot pole company. Uh, anyway, but yeah, so after you buy your 10-foot pole for an exorbitant price, uh, you go to the dungeon, find a lot of good loot, and you realize, wait a minute, you know what would go great with this? A swamp and a lovable green character. Uh, apart from that guy, um, I won't say his dreaded name or talk about his donkey, but I will say you do need to bring your donkey along to help bring back all that fat loot. So my question, Ryan, how much is your finest state-of-the-line purebred uh, mule donkey go for these days? And I'm just going to say, going into this, I thought we were just going to be doing weapons, so I am now trying to figure out how to wield a donkey <laughs> as a weapon, and... 
you know, it, I feel just, like look forward to it, folks. That's that's been one of the quests of of all of humankind for the past couple of centuries. Is just how do we wield our purebred, one hundred percent genetic superior donkey mule? So, how much do you think you could buy one of these bad boys for? Let's go with uh. Just remember, a certain green swamp dwelling meme happens to own one of these at a decent rate. So do not shoot too high. <laughs> so I should. DreamWorks ain't doing that well. Okay. Oh wow. <laughs> Riding on that donkey money. <laughs> What's one one thousandth of a platinum? Uh, one copper. Ooh. Let, I, don't ask me why I know that all the time. <laughs> quickly, I, I promise. I only fall asleep reading the DM's guide like every night. Let's say um, seventy-five silver. For fuck's sake! Okay, I'll tell you one thing. Don't do that math to me again. You're right. It's it's eight gold, which I guess translates close to seven point five gold, which is silver. But yeah, sure. I guess we'll use the working man's value, ladies and gentlemen. He's correct. I'll give him the point. That's another gold nardy. Let's give it up for Ryan. And DreamWorks. Um, so, now, with your wonderful donkey mule money and your longsword and your ten-foot pole, uh, you're like, you know what I could use? A boat. Because now you're on a boat. A sailing boat. A sailing ship. My question for you, Rygra. Uh, how much did you pay the kind man for your donkey mule ten-foot pole swinging longsword holding treasure hoard carrying boat? A sailing ship. At this Specifically point, traveling at two miles per hour. I've taught the donkey to hold the sword in his mouth and attached a ten-foot pole to his backside to so, warn me of any danger. So what you're saying is you didn't pay for the boat. Uh, you held the man... Oh, yeah. From at, at sword point with About 15 feet away, yeah, yeah. my donkey held the man at sword point, and I just got on the boat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, every good story starts that way. But anyway, so how many gold pieces? I'm setting the fucking standard on this because if I hear like twenty five thousand fucking silver, we're gonna have trouble. So how how many gold pieces does this sailing ship go for? Um, so if I had to say gold pieces, I'd say a boat is worth at least twenty three gold pieces. A sailing ship? I'm saying this is a full-length sailing ship complete with masts. Ooh. Uh, let's let's bump that up to, like, 130 gold pieces. Well, uh, if you're just as good at finding the value of 10-foot poles, I will say you're just as good at finding the value of sailing ships. Things made out of wood are not my specialty. I, apparently that's the case. Um, that time are telling us we're running out of time and I should shut up real quick. But anyway, the sailing ship goes for approximately 10,000 gold pieces. Woo! Yeah, you were a little off. But you know what? That's okay. Nardies don't belong to anybody. But you know what goes great with a ship that you couldn't afford? A nice, warm, smelly piece of cheese at the end of the day. So as you wind down with your 100% purebred donkey mule... Uh, with a nice hunk of cheese, the bartender holds a hand out and asks you to pay up. How much are they asking you for for that delectable hunk of cheese? Did I get? Made mostly of cow's milk. But, you know, ogre milk is pretty good this time of year. And um, I didn't get any alcoholic beverages with that cheese. It was just Boy, straight. it's just cheese. It's wow, just straight cheese. shooting. Damn. Mainlining some cheese right now. That's, that's, a, that's intense. Um, yeah. 
So I sort of lay my mouth, or my whole head on the bar, <laughs> mouth up towards the bartender, and I say, hit me with it, and I put... And I'm, am I doing this in gold pieces again? No, no gold pieces this time. Okay, thank God. I'm, I'm, I'm going to put 75 copper on the table for that one piece of cheese. You know, I will give you that, because it's one silver piece. I'll give you that. You're within Ooh. reason. So that's three nardies. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, give it up to Mr. Rygra for As hot three out of five fills my gullet. Accurately buying a longsword, a donkey, and a hunk of cheese, or where I come from, a Friday night. So, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed the podcast as much as I have enjoyed making it. Uh, DMs out there, uh, be sure to appreciate your players. Players appreciate your DMs. Ryan, you got anything you want to tell the good people listening at home? Uh, once again, don't forget to check out Sabrina on Netflix. I'm going to plug that for the second time. You know, people appreciate that plug. But anyway, all right, so goodbye, everybody. And last but not least, I'd like to throw in a little bit of credit to Mr. McLeod over at Incompetech.com for the song that we used in our commercial in the middle there, uh, Summoning the Rock. Thank you.